Hello and welcome to Young Nostalgia, the podcast for the young at heart and with a passion for the past. Feel free to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and Google Play if you like what you're hearing and follow us and share on our blog and feed youngnostalgia.podbean.com. Feel free to follow the links to our Facebook and Twitter page to keep all up to date on what Ben and I are doing. If you have any ideas about a show, want to be a guest, want to give us a shout out, give us an email at youngnostalgia2017 at gmail.com. I'm Nolan. My best bud right beside me is Ben. How you doing, big guy? I'm doing great today. How you doing, Nolan? Not too bad. So getting into de- into today, we got our fan favorite and personal favorite of, of ours as well. This month in history for August. Tune in next week for our next episode, Tech of the Future, going into um, kind of the way tech has been evolving so quickly and things to see within the next 20 years and things to expect. We're looking forward to it. So getting into this month in history, kicking us off, what do you got, Ben? All right. Well, we're going to start right off on August 7th. Or, excuse me, August 2nd, 1776. In Philadelphia, the majority of the 55 members of the Continental Congress signed the original parchment copy of the Declaration of Independence. So, a little bit of backstory. Uh, backing up, there's a little bit of backstory from beforehand. The very first Continental Congress uh, was made up of different delegates from the colonies. Um, they met in 1774 in the reaction to the coercive acts um, by the British government. Um, and this meeting was it was a response to the re- very restrictive taxes put on by the by the crown, um, and they they met and it was from that initial congress it was kind of decided that uh, there that was kind of the initial breaking point of you know this is not really where this not really a good place to be. They were kind of under the thumb of the British government. Um, they don't really have a whole lot of say in these taxes. I mean, they've they have to send them all of their goods, all their taxes, and they're really not getting a whole lot of benefit out of it. They're kind of being sapped of money. They don't really have any say in their own lives or their um, their role in the British Empire. And so later on in 1775, the Second Continental Congress convened after the American Revolutionary War had begun. Um, they, to basically continue so much their efforts in what can be done about uh, the British Empire. The, the the war had already started, so they're already starting breaking away, and this was more of a, uh, a gathering and rallying of the troops. You know, how exactly are we going to break all of these ties? Yeah, and heading towards like the end of the Civil War too is when the Second Continental Congress started. Um, the Revolutionary really, War. I feel like they were just kind of, um, yep, the Revolutionary War. What did I say? Something so, else? Civil War. <laughs> oh, oops. <laughs> <laughs> but they were talking about um, how they were trying to like wrap up loose ends to try and make sure that this country got on the right foot in 1776 when the Declaration of Independence. Um, you know, you know, trying to set up the groundwork to make sure that this country remained a country after this war instead of broken up all over the place. Right, and so when at, in 1776, when it was finally, um, you know, the declaration was written up and uh, sent over, and you know, it officially started you know, to become a new country. That was, it was still. 
pretty weak and it was under the Articles of Confederation um, which kind of sort of loosely tied the colonies together um, you know, there's a lot of flaws in it and the whole point was there they didn't want very much regulation because that is exactly what they were trying to get away from in the first place so it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to leave and then be boom right back in debt to just a different person they're a different entity yeah it's like tipping the scales too far one way where you got to have it straight down the middle because the biggest thing was the country just didn't have money right yep like no money for an army um, and then states were pretty much left out for themselves to defend themselves and all this mm -hmm. since um, the Re Revolutionary War soldiers is kind of disbanded after the war. Right. And so uh, there's, I mean, there was a lot of problems. There was, uh, each state had their own currency. So, I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>, I <laughs> how know. are you supposed to have, you know, inter interstate commerce and all this stuff when, you know, there isn't even a set monetary value and you know it, it kind of functions similar to like countries different countries trading with each other but there's you know so much red tape to go through and it's, it's such a hassle you know to try to do things that um it, it a lot of times it wasn't you know worth the effort or um it's, you know stuff got tied up in the transactions for so long that you couldn't really get anything done and that was really just one of the problems uh you know, of not being you know, unified as a, you know, a whole country. Yeah. So we can back up a little bit and we can talk about uh, some of the overall uh, regulations that were put on by the British. Uh, a huge one was the Stamp Act um, that was basically a tax on stamps that, you know, it went directly you know the money went b directly back to the crown and so you know yeah that was on it you wanted to send a, a letter or any sort of correspondence even within the own you know within the colonies not even you know off the continent or anything like that you had to send money you're sending your money directly back to the british empire when it really has nothing to do with them even in the slightest yeah yep it's all about making that revenue. I still feel like we pay a lot more for stamps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's still a problem. How we we gotta yeah, I fix feel this. like it just always goes up. <laughs> um, and it, it's kind of interesting. From uh, if we talk all all pre-war, um, the there really wasn't a whole lot going on as far as res actual resistance there was 1766 to 1774 was pretty interesting because it was mostly uh, correspondence and idea exchanged and there wasn't mm -hmm. really a unified political body that kind of you know took dominance and uh, led the way you know uh through actually, you know, doing things, uh, sabotaging this, you know, now you think of like a, a revolution, a more modern revolution where there might be, uh, you know, actual, uh, rallies, there might be, uh, sabotage of things just to try to kind of bring down their power. But there was really just people talking back and forth about, Hey, what are we going to do about this? Yeah. Honestly, a lot of it was just kind of like back channeling to really just like, underground rebels for a cause where they 
um, back channeled through like newspaper articles and um, talking to each other like um, bar talk and all this other stuff to just kind of gain steam and get everyone on the same page that really just didn't want to be part of the British Empire anymore. Right, right. And that that took such a long time. I mean, that was eight years just to do that. <laughs> you know, really get everyone kind of on the same page. And which, I, yeah. looking back on it, I mean, it probably may, it does make a lot of sense. It's not like you could just get on the phone and, you know, call someone like, hey, <laughs> you know, this is what we got going on. You had to, you know, wait for mail to <laughs> the be delivered. Phone. And, so, yeah. Cool. On, uh, All right, moving right on. Moving on. Okay. Well, it's it, kind of along the same lines. We will get to talking. We'll get to talking about uh, the Constitutional Convention, uh, specifically August sixth through tenth, the great ba- the great debate. Excuse me. Um, and this, of course, established the four year term for the office of president, um, and granting Congress the right to regulate foreign trade and interstate commerce, as well as the appointment of a committee to prepare a final draft of the Constitution. This is really kind of big, wasn't it? Oh, it was huge, because we, we kind of talked a little bit earlier um, about the Articles of Confederation, and it was by this time it was really starting to fall apart. Um, it was it was, it was was so weak that it just... it. it, it it didn't. It wasn't close to that fine line of too much power and not enough power, and it there wasn't a way to keep everyone together on the same page. And it, the states were really kind of like independent little countries that, with a loose, a loose tie to one another. Uh huh. It wasn't. It wasn't a unified body of the United States of America. Nobody had any like belief in this Articles of Confederation. Really, um, years afterwards, because states just kind of did whatever they wanted to right exactly and so at the 1787 convention uh delegates put together a plan to put us uh put in place a stronger federal government and that's kind of where the idea of the three branches um was first put in place uh that is the executive legislative and judicial um and that was kind of their the system of checks and balances to uh ensure that not one specific group had too much power. They each had their own responsibilities and they were kept in check um, by each other. So no one branch can get one specific thing done. They, they all had to um, go through each other and kind of double check um, that everything was in accordance to the the, the law, the Constitution, the, mm-hmm. the actual law of federal government. Um, yeah. And in addition to this, th- of course, the Bill of Rights came along with it, um, with the Ten Amendments that basically guaranteed inju- in basic individual protections, um, such as freedom of speech, freedom of speech, excuse me, and religion. Um, and that and that came along in to 1791, today. and so there was kind of a. Uh, kind of a time period in between where that wasn't um part of the constitution but it, it didn't it didn't take very long for that to follow up so i kind of have a breakdown of the um each individual known weakness of the articles of confederation um each state had only one vote in congress regardless of its size which is 
kind of counterintuitive to as what we would think now if a, a state has yeah. a, a large population you'd think they would need you know a, a larger say in what's going on um and, and really kind of started the debate back and forth from the great debate is the great compromise where the legislative um, branches the house and the senate were really formed for mm-hmm. um the equal opportunity for all the states really no matter what Right. So not only did you have it was it was not just a, a one body that um, that had all of the lawmaking power. Not it was it was split up to where you have the Congress and the Senate, and there's a certain amount of senators. But then it also has to double check itself with the Congress, which is um, it's kind of balanced out all the states are kind of balanced out with uh i'm sorry with congressmen with uh the different number of congressmen according to the population size of the state yep so if we move on to number two um congress didn't have power to tax or regulate foreign and interstate commerce um and so there was really no way for revenue to fund the government until until then i mean there's there's no way to if, if there was something that needed to be done well how are we supposed to get money for it um yeah and and this is really a big problem because of the unification process is that if the federal government doesn't have any money what what makes the states want to listen to it in the first place right right exactly um, <laughs> <laughs> um and so number three is we have there was no executive branch to enforce anything from congress so there the Articles of Confederation under that there might have been something a law passed or something like that and you know that's all fine and good but there was really no way to make sure that it was actually carried out which is kind of a big problem <laughs> <laughs> and by that same token there is no court system so there was no you know federal federally overarching um, system of you know uh, carrying out punishments for not following laws and that sort of thing yeah it makes so. sense how all of this just really just didn't work out too lot because um <laughs> yeah I looking mean, at it we, now you know it's yeah we look at it like common sense now like well you really need these things to operate well you know you kind of have to put yourself in the mindset of <laughs> they're trying to get out of they were trying to get out of a situation where there was so much pressure on them and so much uh, regulation that they couldn't even hardly do anything and so it kind of makes sense that mm-hmm. you would want something weak so yeah yeah alright let's move on to All our right. next topic what do you got for us Nolan alright big guy so on August 2nd um, as well back in 1939 this thing is really huge especially um, when we kind of talked about the future of technology this was really the um, tipping point that brought us into the revolutionary age. So Albert Einstein wrote a letter to Franklin um, D. Roosevelt concerning the possibility of atomic bo- uh, atomic weapons. Einstein wrote a single bomb of this type carried by a boat and exploded in a port might very well destroy the whole port together with some of the surrounding territory, kind of giving hints to the destruction of what an A-bomb could actually do. So six years later, on August 6, 1945, the first atomic bomb developed by the U.S. in the Manhattan Project was dropped on the Japanese port of Hiroshima. So really, August 2nd, uh, th- what this uh, fact is all about is how Einstein wrote to FDR talking about 
the monumentous project of a bombs and really what what it could bring to the world really changes the whole landscape of war um and and political conflicts as we know it really right and his his whole point was look this is kind of becoming a new field of technology and if we don't jump on this someone else will and it'll really you know be a bad time for us yeah and it's so interesting too because the the way we got the atomic bomb as it read um as we got here is a american scientists which many of them were refugees from the fascist regimes in europe namely like nazi germany that's where einstein came out of became concerned with nuclear weapons research being conducted by nazi germany so when einstein came over he kind of had these ideas and understood what germany was doing at the time so he was like just like you were saying we gotta jump on this and get ahead of the game to make sure that we have the power on our side to know what to do and how to handle it rather than the enemy right and that was that was kind of a key thing i mean it was uh, it was huge to have that almost uh, inside look into you know the other countries the uh, opponent countries that are you know developing this technology and that was that was huge to have that um that kind of kickstarter of uh, you know, hey, like we need to be, we need to be on top of this, um, mm-hmm. because I've seen, you know, what's going on over here, and it's it's not going to look good if you guys don't <laughs> step it up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, and uh, just a year later, in 1940, the U.S. government actually begun the funding for its own atomic weapons, um, known as the Manhattan Project that we know now, and it came under the joint responsibility of Office of Scientific Research and Development. And the War Department, understandably, the War Department, um, <laughs> which then, um, years, a couple years later, they sent them to Los Alamos, New Mexico, where a team led by J. Robert Oppenheimer worked to turn these materials that they were working on and um, researching into the first workable atomic bomb. And uh, it says here, er- uh, early on the morning of July 16th, 1945, the first plutonium bomb was actually set off from the Manhattan Project, and this was called the Trinity Test in Alamo um, Gordo, New Mexico. So honestly, that's when everything just turned around. Um, and actually, we had a uh, trivia topic, which was a bonus question of when was the first atomic bomb um, <laughs> blasted? And uh, we totally got it wrong, but it was so funny. I wanted to put this in here just to um, <laughs> bring it full circle, I guess. So we know now. We know now. So trivia questions. Listen to Young Nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, can you imagine being in like a bunker and seeing this thing go off? I mean, you're witnessing a whole new, uh, a whole new era of war. Yeah, and I don't even think that they really truly understood the impact that this, that these kind of bombs could have on civilization or just technology in general. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's hard to say, you know, what they were thinking at the time. I'm sure the huge the mindset it was like we need this because, you know, we need we need the cutting edge on the war effort, and you know, without this, you know, who knows? Yeah, you know, it could war could turn at any moment, and, you know, especially with, um, at this point, I mean, the Japanese were such uh, were such a huge force. I mean, they they fought to the death, and that was just kind of part of the culture to where yeah. You know, there really was no surrendering or anything like that, and you you just you had to do what you had to do, and it was, you know, you know, it was a uh, 
bad circumstances, but you you just have to have something like this. We're like, look, guys, you know, if you don't if you don't stop, this is what we got. You know, exactly, and, and that kind of leads us right into the next one. Um, while while following this timeline, in late July 1945, Japan's militarist government rejected the Allied demand for surrender, and um, the Potsdam direct uh, declaration put forth in the Potsdam declaration which threatened to the Japanese quote prompt and utter destruction if they refused to surrender which we know now um, you know a few days later on August 6th is when um, little boy was dropped and actually behind the scenes I can only imagine the tension in the air when they talked about and um, uh, they were actually you know issued the go ahead on dropping this bomb. It says here General Douglas MacArthur and other top military commanders favored continuing the conventional bombing of Japan rather than um, implementing the atomic bomb and they actually called it the Operation Downfall. But against moral reservations of Secretary of War Henry um, Stimson for Ge- General Dwight Eisenhower and a number of the Manhattan Project scientists really advised um, not to drop the bomb for Truman. And then I have it here for the advocates for dropping the bomb. James Burns, which was Truman's Secretary of State, believed that his devastating power, which is interesting, would not only end the war, but also put the U.S. in a dominant position to determine the course of post-war world. Now, isn't that so insane how they kind of thought what could put the U.S. in the best light to travel forward? Because we became a major superpower after World War Two, right? And that was kind of uh, the advocates for it. They they saw it as like, um, this is this is our opponent, the Japanese. It's a country that there's no they're they're not going to surrender. So you have to devastate them before just just to get them to stop. And then it, where you said uh, it would put the U.S. in a dominant position to determine the course of the post war post war world. Um, that kind of leads into the mentality of peace through strength. I mean, you don't want to go around as a bully, but you need to you need to let people know that you know if you step out of line and if you're um, you know involved with the kind of things uh, that Japan was with uh, you know Nazi Germany. I mean that you know that we can't let that happen. Um, and so it, yeah. you're not really it's kind of, that's another kind of fine line. I mean, you you can't you know be a bully country but on the other hand you know you have to show off what you got and you know if you step out of line then that's what you're going to get yeah exactly especially with world war Two being such a war like a, a modern war that people just haven't really experienced the devastation mm-hmm. is is gigantic and really truman's thought behind it was what's the best way to bring this war to a swift and utter end and move on as a as a um you know, as just a international world and being as a human race, like how can we get past this and just rebuild um, and move forward? So, yeah, and that that swift um, end is that, that is key. You know, it's they we were tired of messing around and dragging things out, and they were just looking for a way to just boom and end it. Yep. So, and, exactly. and you and you and look at the guys, <laughs> and you look at the guys who were against it in the first place. Um, the Secretary of War um, Eisenhower. Um, and the the Manhattan Project scientists, and you can kind of see where they're looking at. You're coming from twos. They wanted to continue the war. They thought it could be won as is, and yeah, 
you can kind of you know get in place of you can kind of get into their mindset of well if we don't have to bring about this new age of war um we we shouldn't if we don't have to um yeah and you know because I, I mean that's going to lead i mean because ultimately they who knows they might have been thinking ahead i mean that's kind of the whole idea of the the cold war you know come in you know years later um mm-hmm. to where that it's yeah all everyone could see the power of this new technology and and the the effect that it could have on war and um they thought that well you know if we don't if we don't use it we can you know prevent you know that type of war from ever happening or you know conflict in, involved with that yeah i think just fear of the unknown really honestly cuz i mean we all have it all the time so all right, moving right along, some quick succession. Um, like we said, August 6th, 1945, Little Boy, the first atomic bomb, was dropped on Hirosh- Hiroshima at 8.15 in the morning. August 9th, 1945, the second atomic bombing, Fat Man, um, occurred on the Japan soil of Nagasaki. But um, they were actually originally headed for the city of Kakura, but um, the actual the clouds um and debris from the first atomic bomb actually held them back, and they had to retarget to Nagasaki. And then on August 14th of 1945, brought about the um, official surrender ceremony um, from the Japanese. And actually, the emperor, Emperor um, Hirohito, who had never spoken on radio, recorded a, a um, very popular, or not necessarily popular, but like renowned announcement admitting Japan's surrender over the airwaves um, actually using the word surrender in Japan's words for the first time over br- uh, broadcast radio for the Japan, um, emperor so pretty cool stuff yeah it is interesting that uh, you know that particular um, subject matter was his first you know uh, public radio broadcast that's kind of interesting that under those circumstances that that would bring about that new um aspect of his uh regime yeah yep all right big guy moving right along what do you got all right let's go to august 7th we're kind of moving in somewhat chronological order here august 7th 1964 (laughs) um Following an attack on two U.S. destroyers in the Gulf of Tonkin off North Vietnam, the U.S. Congress approved the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. This granted President Lyndon B. Johnson authority to, quote, take all necessary measures to repel any armed attack against the forces of the United States and to prevent further aggression. I think this is so insane just based on the amount of power that it gives him without just declaring war. Yeah, and and this whole the the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, um, and that that phrase to take all ne- necessary measures, um, that that's something we kind of see, you know, years and years later. I mean, World War Two was the last time war was officially declared by the United States, and I think looking at this Gulf of Tonkin resolution, this, this kind of begins that trend of wars that aren't really wars yeah so we get getting into a little bit more specific um the gulf of tonkin resolution it gave a very broad congressional approval for expansion of 
of the Vietnam War. Um, during the spring of 1964, military planners had developed a detailed design for major attacks on the North. Um, but at that time, President Johnson and his advisors uh, thought that the public would not be very supportive for an expansion of the war. Um, they, At that time, the public was not really um, concerned with what was going on at you know overseas at this point um but by the summer however the rebel forces had established um control over nearly half of south vietnam um and senator barry goldwater um the republican nominee for president at the time uh was really criticizing johnson and his administration for not pursuing the war more and i was using that as really a um as his political platform yeah, and this is such a touchy subject just because of the state of the United States at this time. Um, you had, you know, JFK, which was, I mean, you know, that just shook the entire nation, what happened to JFK in 1964. And then just put that on top of this teeter-totter of Vietnam um, and everything like this, the American public were really, I'm sure, they just were overwhelmed with what was happening. And I'm sure that being a part of this conflict was not helping what they thought about the government at any means. Oh, right. And especially looking at it, I mean, the this all of what was going on, the decision to you know stay out of the conflict, you know, be in the conflict, it was being such it was so politicized, and you know, it was being used as a running platform, and you know, the uh, the you know, Johnson and his advisors were looking at it as more of a uh, approval kind of thing like you know is the people going to be supportive of this well, it is it is important to make sure that um the american public is supportive of something like that but you know what if, if you have to go for it or you don't go for it um yeah and you can't make it a political matter it is a matter of you know national security um it's a matter of keeping citizens safe it's you know what if it's going to trash your approval and your, uh, you know, your, your future uh, platform. Well, then so what? But if, if it's the right thing to do, you do it. You know. Yep. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, so we we go back a little bit and we look at August second. Um, shortly after a clandestine raid on the North Vietnamese coast by South Vietnamese gunboats, gunboats, uh, the U.S. destroyer the Maddox. Um, at the time was conducting electronic espionage, um, was fired on by two North Vietnamese torpedo boats. Two days later in the same area, the Maddox and another destroyer reported that they were under attack. Um, these reports now appear to have been mistaken, um, whether it was by accident or kind of fudged a little bit to uh, kind of spur on the war effort. Um, Johnson had a Proceeded, had proceeded quickly to authorize retaliatory airstrikes against the North Vietnam. Um, Which really just kind of kicked everything off. Right, right. And, you know, it, it, we'll get to it here in a minute, but it was kind of realized later on that, you know, kind of been some misleading information that led to these authorizations. So the next day he gathered congressional leaders and without divulging the circumstances which that kind of seems sketchy a little bit right there um that without divulging the circumstances that might have helped provoke the torpedo attack 
he accused the North Vietnamese of open aggression on the high seas. Um, he then admitted to the Senate a resolution that authorized him to take all necessary measures to repel any armed attack against the forces of the United States and to prevent further aggression. Wow. Um, this one thing leads to another, and you just get to this tipping point. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it was very, very quickly approved by Congress. Um, the the only uh, opposition were Senators Wayne Morse uh, from Oregon and Ernest Gruning from Alaska voted against it. So that is a huge landslide um, backing you know, yeah, for this, I can only this imagine, uh, authority. I can only imagine what Congress was like when they were talking about this kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 I agree. I mean... It's, who's you know is are people asking for more obviously no one was really asking for that much more information if you know it passed like that yeah Um, so later on after that um when more information about the tonkin incident became available uh it was pretty widely believed that johnson and his advisors had misled congress into supporting the expansion of the war uh well (laughs) well there you go right there (laughs) You know what? I I don't know if you've ever been watching, but we watch House of Cards, and we absolutely love it, Michelle and I. Oh, okay. And I've it's never so weird it. to see behind-the-scenes political acts like that because all these favors are, quote-unquote, cashed in, and so then they sway votes a certain way that you know yep. a dominant person might want that. So who knows how long this kind of you know political action has been going on that Johnson could have done that same thing. It's so weird to be able to sway, you know, their opinion in a certain way to make sure a, um, you know, oh, their yeah. party ideal or something like that is is followed through through Congress. Oh, I just think it's insane. <laughs> I'm sure that it happens all of the time. I mean, more often than anyone can imagine, I'm sure that that is going on. Yeah. Um, so weird yeah, how the parallels go, but. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, we kind of wrap this up. Six years later, um, you know, throughout the uh, increasing criticism of President Nixon um, and his Cambodian incursion, uh, and the Cambodian incursion, not necessarily his, uh, the resolution was terminated on December 31st, 1970. Um, but the war had still been sustained by Congress's continued military. Uh, appropriations not by the Tonkin resolution since it had been terminated. Um, Nevertheless, Johnson had frequently cited the resolution as evidence of congressional support and to critics of the war. It had become a symbol of the escalation they opposed. Yeah, um, really, I feel like the Vietnam War was just such a divide in the country um, and, and led to many things of music and people coming together for a common cause. Um, and, and really just a staple in um, Cold War and just tensions in the world and in America at once, too. Oh, right. And and so the uh, we've talked in previous shows. We, there was one show uh, a while back that we talked about. Uh, kind of We kind of got into the counterculture a little bit of that time period. And that was kind of a huge um, idea behind that counterculture was the vietnam war i mean it was in the music it was in uh the the media and the 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 uh literature of the time i mean it was it was that was one of the main staples of that whole movement was opposition of this war effort 
And we talked, um, we found some information about Woodstock that happened in August as well, but we decided not to include it. We'll talk about it, you know, maybe next year in this month in history. <laughs> but um, I'm sure Vietnam brought those people together. Oh, yeah, to, of course. You know, you know what I mean? It, it was just that kind of style. It was, it was that kind of grouping that really just did that kind of thing. So anyway, moving the show forward. Um, our last topic to dive into today, August 13th, 1961, the Berlin Wall came into existence after the East German government closed the border between East and West sectors of Berlin. This is kind of going into the whole um, worldwide tensions after uh, World War II and all that good stuff. With barbed wire to discourage immigration Im- um, to the West from the East Berlin, it became a d- notorious symbol of the Cold War, and Presidents Kennedy and Reagan made notable appearances at the wall, accompanied by speeches denouncing communism, which we see in the Vietnam War effort is the drowning of communism to make sure it doesn't spread mm-hmm. across the world. So actually, just a little tidbit that <laughs> Ben found this. Uh, we actually have a picture of Ben's mom um, probably <laughs> what the '90s that we kind of concluded because the the wall had been started to be tor- torn down, but uh, Ben's mom actually ha- was selling pieces of the Berlin Wall at a store that she managed in Ashland. So there's actually a uh, news article from the Mansfield News Journal. I'm sorry, it was in Mansfield, not Ashland. Um, in the in their local newspaper, she, she there's actually a picture of her with the Berlin Wall that they were selling. So we're actually going to make a uh, Facebook and Twitter post about that. <laughs> uh, lead, lead you yep. to, to this episode. Um, yeah, we found it, anyway, found she, it at home, <laughs> right, when you were doing show prep. So I thought it would be pretty funny to include that in there. Well, when you look at the picture, the way that Ben's mom is smiling is exactly the way Ben looks. So you'll know what he looks like a little bit. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> anyway. Um, All right, let's move okay. along. <laughs> yep, on a more serious note. So talking about the Berlin Wall um, started actually – existing in 1961 so the official purpose um by the russians was for the billing wall to um stop the western fascists quote unquote which is the capital um free um, social state uh, from entering the east german and undermining the socialist state of the soviet union um, but it primarily served the objective of stemming mass defections from east to west. So pretty much the Soviet Union wanted to stop um, Berlin citizens from going one place to the other to be on the capitalist side. So it stood until November 9th, 1989. From uh, there, the East German Communist Party announced that citizens of the GDR, um, which is the Democratic Republic, um, the German Democratic Republic could cross the border whenever they pleased. Um, that night, ecstatic crowds swarmed the wall after um, it was announced that the wall would be no longer enforced, and some crossed freely into West Berlin to meet friends, um, and others brought hammers and picks and began to actually chip away at the wall <laughs> itself with these uh, little <laughs> sickles and picks. <laughs> Which um, I can only imagine. Can you imagine what the feeling and the error? that day would have been when they decided to not enforce the wall anymore. Yeah. I mean, that, that has to be, I, I can't imagine what it was, would be like, you know, to be living there and, you know, hear that, um, you know, the, the, there was no more, no more wall. Um, that would be huge for both sides really. I mean, uh, the, the, the East side under, um, you know, the communist rule. I mean, I'm sure they were absolutely itching to get out. Um, 
you know anyone in that sort of situation is would flock towards uh, a a freer system of you know capitalism. Um, yeah, and I'm sure the other side was you know really wanting to get in, uh, not necessarily get in, um, but uh, <laughs> you know to kind of spread, you know, kind of almost like force the, the the communism out of there. I mean, there was. I'm sure there were sentiments of wanting to help uh, provide aid, you know, I'm sure, you know, food, uh, rations, that sort of thing. I'm sure that there was that that was going on at the time. Um, So there was there was uh, I'm sure there's friendships that were split up uh, over the course of this wall. They were being um, reunited years later. Yeah, it's it was interesting that you said um, about the you know the starving of the citizens and everything like that. So the existence of the West Berlin, um, a conspicuously capitalist city, which we kind of talked about within the communist East Germany, it said, "quote stuck like a bone in the Soviet throat," as quoted by Nikita Khrushchev um, of the Soviet Union. So breaking it down of what the wall actually was from 1948 to 49. The blockade was actually to literally starve the Allies to leave um, West Berlin so the Soviet Union can just take over the entire city. Which mm-hmm. is interesting because I know we talked about in the past of um, the beginning of the Berlin Airlift, which did 2.3 million tons of goods delivered by air to West Berlin. That is huge. 2.3 million tons. I know. Delivered by air plane like constant airplanes in and out oh yeah what a sight is, i can I mean, only imagine um, absolutely amazing um and you going back you you talked about the uh um the the famine well basically forced famine and the uh the control that the, the soviet union had i mean that was kind of a uh that was kind of a, a main uh a main uh, that that's what Soviet Union was known for, and the communist countries were known for, um, was these starvations. I mean, that's the ultimate way yeah. of keeping people in check. Was you know you cut off what they need to survive, and you know, you've yep. kind of got them. What 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 choice do they have but to go along with it when you're holding back, you know, uh, nourishment? Yeah, the basic necessities. Right. <laughs> Um. All right. So to 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 just give you a little bit of of, of, of of aspect of what this wall actually was, it was a twelve foot tall, four foot wide mass of reinforced concrete, topped with enormous pipe that made climbing nearly impossible to get over it because you couldn't even get a hand on it. Right. So behind the wall, on the East German side, was so called death trap, a gauntlet of soft sand to show footprints if anybody was actually trying to cross. They had floodlights, vicious dogs, tripwire, machine guns, and patrolling soldiers with orders to shoot escapees on sight. They were really trying to starve out the Allies, which is insane to even think about why you know something like this would even happen. Um, but from 1961 until the wall came down in 1989, more than 5,000 East Germans, including some 600 border guards, so even the Soviets themselves understood what was happening and wanted to get out of that kind of situation. They actually managed to cross the border by either jumping out of windows adjacent to the wall, climbing over the barbed wire, flying in a hot air balloon, 
crawling through the sewers and driving through unfortified parts of the wall at high speeds. Can you imagine the dire straits that these citizens needed to have to be able to do that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean... Oh, man. <laughs> it's, it's just... insane. Only... Uh, 5,000 uh, East Germans uh, were able to cross. I mean, that might seem like a large number, but I mean, that's... Over 28 years. Yeah. 28 years it took for 5,000 to yeah. cross over the border after the wall was built. Yeah. yeah. That is... It's not a lot when you look at, you know, 20 years, over 20 years. Yeah. So over that's, a 20 year span. That's insane. And understandably why the Berlin Wall was really just a divide and a staple in what the Cold War was actually doing to the to the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of a a physical representation of the of the divide. And it says here that the greatest street party in the history of the world um, <laughs> as the celebration in November 9th, 1989 as described by one journalist. I can only imagine like I would say take New Year's and oh, yeah. know, quadruple that. Yeah. I mean, celebration for those people, you know, <laughs> absolutely at that, at that time. I mean, absolutely that was cool. the that was the event of a lifetime. I mean, that was, I mean, that was going to change their lives. Yep, waited almost thirty years for that yeah. celebration to happen. Way too long, I can imagine. All right, so the reunification of East and West Germany was actually made official on October third. 1990, almost a year after the fall of the Berlin Wall mm-hmm. when they didn't enforce it anymore. And then uh, just to wrap everything up, in August 29th, 1991, following the unsuc- unsuccessful coup of August 19th through the 21st, the Soviet Communist Party was officially suspended, thus ending the institution that ruled Soviet Russia for over nearly 75 years. So really it was just one thing after another leading to the end of the Soviet Union. Um, and then we get to the point where Ben's mom is holding a piece of the Berlin Wall for people to buy memorabilia. Oh, <laughs> Directly oh, led to that. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you got to bring it full circle, man. That's what we're all about. <laughs> so um, that's pretty much all we got. And um, pretty much all of our information is from history.com. And the events that we chose are from the history place dot com that's where we get all of our this month yep. in history don't forget about constitution.org <laughs> that's where that's in there that's too. where ben that's got all of his goods definitely got to <laughs> check that out um and then uh <laughs> can't forget the mansfield news journal with uh ben's mom's smiling face holding the berlin wall <laughs> all right i'll wrap it up here thanks so much for listening to young nostalgia and sticking with us uh through our long delay as we tried to uh, figure out what we needed to do to record remotely and give it to you guys the same quality and the love of young nostalgia that uh, we share with you guys um, properly so again please feel free to follow us and give us a shout out subscribe and rate on itunes and google play Follow and share on youngnostalgia.podbean.com. That's where we do a lot of our blogging, and you'll find all of our episodes on there as well. You'll see our links to our Facebook and Twitter pages. Like and share, and let us know what you think. If you have any ideas, want to be a guest with Ben and I on Young Nostalgia, give us a shout-out and an email at youngnostalgia2017 at gmail.com. Anything else, big guy? Nope. I think we nailed it all for the day. All right, sounds good. Tune into our next episode next week for Tech 
of the future, talking about AI and what to see in the next 20 years, as we always say. Keep the bottles empty and the ashtrays full. Take care, everybody.